Excellent. So, we're up to the next installment of the Shuvah's Ebene Ezer of Logidari Dov Zatzal, published in the Hadarom. And um, we're up to Simen Yud. We're up to Simen Yud. There is a total in the Ebene Ezer collection, is a total of 20 Simonim. So we're up to Simon Yud, we're about halfway uh, finished. But Eben Ezra obviously played a very prominent role in the um, Piskei Din of, uh, of Schwartz, uh, not surprisingly, uh, from a Besden vantage point. Uh, many of the Shadows relate to Kiddushin and to, and to Gitin and um, to um, other uh, issues uh, in the realm of Eben Ezer. Uh, so we're going to uh, get to some work today. And one is a comment that Rav Schwartz uh, made uh, to me uh, towards uh, the end of his uh, tenure, I guess, shortly before he had a stroke, uh, which was that he had received a number of Shilohs uh, from some other country. It wasn't even from the United States. It was from some other country, um, way down under. And uh, they were asking him uh, Shilohs uh, that related to uh, transgender and uh, to uh, sex change and uh, what's the status of uh, the people in the community, where do they sit, do you treat like men or women, for this purpose, that purpose, the other purpose. And he handed me the various Shilohs and he said uh, that I just, I can't relate to these at all. Uh, that's what he said to me. He said, I'm from a different generation and I just can't relate to these uh, Shilohs. It's just, it's not for, it's not for me, it's not for, you know, my, um, for my rabbinic training. And uh, could you please uh, handle these uh, for me? And uh, it, it's, it, it's kind of an interesting thing. I, I remember seeing in a safer once uh, that Pascal uh, Levenstein, who was uh, uh, I believe in Panovich, uh, once uh, said towards the end of his life to his Talmudim, I'm, I'm not, you know, from this generation anymore. Uh, that there were certain questions or issues that were coming in the generation. Or Schwartz just felt like he, he couldn't uh, he couldn't relate to it, and um, that's so. What you see at the beginning of uh, Simen Yud, the first half of the Chuba has to do with What about same-sex marriages? Uh, at the time that he wrote this Chuba, it was something that was being discussed in the abstract. This was in maybe 1994 or so that he wrote uh, that he wrote the Chuba. And he said, um, I received, he's uh, talking to with the Rav who had sent him, you know, the various Shilas. What does he think about a particular uh, conservative um, rabbi? He says, Mani Conservativi, uh, who says uh, that, who wrote about people who are ensconced, what he says, in a homosexual lifestyle. And this particular conservative uh, leader, he doesn't call him a rabbi, he just calls him a mani, this particular conservative leader, he says uh, that he has uh, the uh, perverse view, the daitum misyefis, uh, that uh, these, um, that the lifestyle of those people who are engaged in these unions, these same-sex unions, that is something that would not be prohibited according to halacha, when it's uh, an explicit uh, pasuk in the Torah, saying that it uh, carries with it a chi of skila, that it's a toeva, so Shwas would get very upset. He was very tolerant of people in general, but not when they would take stands that were clearly negative the Torah. Like he could get along with non-observant people perfectly fine. Even non even rabbis of other denominations, if they would turn to Rabbi Schwartz and say, We respect what you have to say, we think what you have to say is authentic Torah. We not, not know as much as you. We may not practice as much as you, 
uh, we may uh, not uh, even instruct our congregants in you know the proper ways as we should, but we understand that what you're saying is authentic. And that was something that he could deal with. But somebody who would get up and he would say as a matter of a Torah law that something that's prohibited from the Torah is really permitted according to the Torah, so that would set Rabbi Schwartz off in a, a very um, uh, extreme fashion or a very um, serious fashion. And he would get very upset. He would get upset at his fellow Orthodox rabbis who uh, would publish things uh, that he felt were negative halakha. He got very upset when he saw that there were various uh, rabbis of uh, orthodox ordination who would form uh, Bate Din, their own rabbinic courts, uh, without any kind of a shimush and without any kind of a mesorah, without any kind of endorsement from Gedola Yisrael, and they would start um, permitting uh, women to remarry without gittin based on uh, their own uh, rationales, uh, and um, he would uh, be the first uh, to sign letters of uh, condemnation and uh, outrage uh, against uh, individuals, uh, even if they were well-known and well-meaning individuals who would do that sort of thing because uh, they would be uh, essentially uh, flouting uh, the Torah and the authority of, uh, and the authority of the Torah. Um, so he speaks very strongly in this um, shuva as well. He says there's no time, there's no taste in the sense of there being any uh, svara any rationale that would justify a homosexual relationship, but there's also no reach. It's not kifi ruach ha-Torah. There's such a thing as the Dvar Torah, and there's such, such a thing as the ruach Torah. When he was asked once about, um, in terms of feminist issues, he was asked about partnership minyanim, with women getting uh, alias in some uh, fashion, and uh, he also wrote that this is not according to, you know, the letter of the law, and it's not according to the spirit of the law, uh, and that uh, he is both uh, against it uh, for uh, reasons of uh, Torah uh, arguments and uh, for reasons of his own intuitive, intuitive Torah sense, because you have to be a gadol and be Yisrael to have the proper uh, intuition. And he goes further to say, and by the way, this particular movement is Kedishas Apikoros, that this is uh, the way that an apikaris approaches something, that they want to switch the rules and change the rules of the Torah in accordance with whatever happened to be the fashions and the fads of the time. So you figure that he wasn't marich, Yosef Bezeh, because he said, I have no desire to be marich. But he really was marich, because we found afterwards, um, and this is after actually the publication of the like a couple of boxes made their way into the office. I'm going through the boxes, and I find an 11-page shuva that he wrote to some unspecified, so you can see it's real, they brought into some, uns, that, he, that he wrote, I guess, to some unspecified individual. It's signed by him, not dated, so I couldn't tell you exactly when it was from, except that he wrote it at some point after he had moved to Chicago, because it has his Chicago address, a letterhead, 3001 West Chase Avenue, uh, on the top of uh, the first page, and he goes on and on, basically bringing every single source about uh, the nature of the uh, Torah prohibition, the severity of the Torah prohibition of homosexuality, he even spends some time speaking about uh, same-sex unions amongst women, which we know is what we call Nashim Sulalos, which is described by the Gemara, which he says, which is generally understood because of the fact that it's not, you know, an intimate relationship of the same sort, what we call Kimokokol Shibishbofaris, um, that there's no penetration, so that's generally understood to be an Isidra bottom, but he quotes from uh, the Sefer Kyrios Melech Rav, Chelek Bey Simen Chav Avav, who says uh, that um, within the Rambam, 
that it's an Isidrabanan if it's not in the context of the two women having a marital relationship with each other. But if it's in the context of the two women having a marital relationship with each other, then it falls under the category of that you're not supposed to do Kimaseyem Eretz Mitzrayim. That you're not supposed to do like the Toevas of the, of, uh, the abominations of Mitzrayim Luyasu. And he says that we fall under that category as an actual Deraisa prohibition. And he goes on and on. And um, what he's addressing, in part he's addressing a few things in the course of uh, this uh, of this tshuva, but one of the things that, that he's addressing is a kind of uh, what do you do if you're a therapist and if somebody comes to you who has uh, this type of an orientation, how are you supposed to treat it? Now, it's an interesting thing because some of his recommendations, and I don't know that we would publish the tshuva, though I'm speaking about it, so I guess it gets published in terms of the tape, but, you know, he didn't, he never actually, you know, published this in any form that I'm aware of, um, but he really felt that to validate this type of an orientation was something that was improper for a medical professional to do. Uh, and um, he says that if a person is dealing with this and they want to be cured, so that's, you know, a perfectly legitimate thing. And then he says that there are ways that, things that normally we wouldn't allow, like to arouse people by looking at certain images and the like. A person's not supposed to be aroused. But if it's to help individuals get over this type of an orientation, so you'll show them um, very explicit and graphic images that will, you know, arouse their interest in the opposite sex. So he says that that can be countenanced. That's something that could potentially uh, be permitted uh, regarding uh, such a thing. Um, but he gets very upset about the following, and I'll just, you know, mention it because uh, this is he has sort of this short beginning of the tshuva. So he gives me a, a pesach, I guess, you know, to cite from this other unpublished tshuva. He says um, that he says that that um, anybody who is looking for a trufa lamachalaso shonem yelo shemisparim, but it's very different from those who glorify this type of a lifestyle, b'pumbi, sh'derach hayeyem, b'maiset to'eva, sh'leveva, mishkor zochor, e'mbo shum, gedr shaliser, and they want to argue that there's nothing prohibited about it. It's exactly what he was complaining about in this tshuva from approximately 1994. Verot sim they want to be members of shuls, sort of, while they're flaunting this lifestyle, me'mishkabu yachad, yasei bateknesses, and they even form the shul, so I don't know when the synagogue was formed, but I guess this tshuva was written afterwards. Shinikroim gay synagogues. He wrote that out in English. Ha'uvda she'ein lohem shum busha amaseim. The fact that they have no embarrassment for this hamtu avim. Maybe osam bechlam mashikasu b'torah aror shiloyakim estivrei atorah azos lasososam. So he says that they are explicitly included. He bases this on a Ramban um, that um, who differentiates between people who might violate an Avera B'Teavon because their temptations and desires get the best of them, as opposed to somebody who violates an Avera because Beshita, they decide that this Avera is going to be something which they define as a proper and legitimate thing to do, even though the Torah says otherwise. So that, he says, would subject the individual to the implication, to the curse, which is explicitly stated in the Torah, in Parashas Kisavo, of Aro Shiloyakim Estivrei Torah Hazo. So it's very, very interesting. And then when he gets to the very end of the Tshuva, he has like various uh, conclusions and maskonos um, uh, that he forms with respect to this, uh, to this I- issue. 
Um, and he says that, uh, number one, somebody who does this, you know, Bashita, wanting to feel that this is uh, something legitimate, um, it is considered to be Metuab Yosef Mishab uh, because of the very strong term that the Torah uses of Toeva, he says that this is considered to be more abominable. He was very uh, concerned. And uh, this concern, I think, has been borne out to some degree. Um, very concerned that any kind of honoring or legitimizing is going to um, uh, created the impression that uh, somehow there's some wiggle room from the Torah perspective. So, from Schwartz's perspective, if you write, like, for example, a Mazel Tov notice to a same-sex couple celebrating a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah of a child that they had, you know, adopted together, so that would be a real problem of a validation that people are going to potentially interpret that as a validation of this type of lifestyle. He wasn't saying not to be compassionate to people in general, but he was saying don't celebrate or glorify or embrace if what people are looking for is an endorsement of the lifestyle. To have an endorsement of being a human being who's struggling with not being able to overcome an Aveira, that's one thing. So he says, by all means, we'll figure out every single way to treat it uh, and to relate to the person, but to to want to be accepted for uh, championing and uh, for um, uh, glorifying and for living in accordance with this Aveira as if it were legitimate, so that's something else uh, entirely. Um, And he goes further to say, uh, You can't accept such a person to be a Rebbe. I think that's still sort of the conventional approach. Oh, the Ezer Mister Batokihilo Yehudis, or to serve in some prominent rabbinic capacity. Move on, Shemishu Chave Bekila HaHomosexualist, a gay synagogue in the Kabbal Kachave Beisaknesis. If a person's a member of such a synagogue, then they should not be accepted to be a member of an Orthodox synagogue either. Um, and then he says that Ma'aser the Beisaknesis Lishtate Bebabeisaknesis. If you have a rabbinic organization like a board of rabbis, and one of the shuls included in the board of rabbis is like a gay synagogue, something like that, so he says the orthodox shul can't be a member, even if you would otherwise uh, be uh, inclined uh, to be mekel. And then he says, everything that I've set up until now, lesbians. And the same thing is true with respect to, to uh, women in the same uh, sort of category, no differentiation. And then he says, if you're a psychologist or a mumche, I'm a tapil in the gue ruach, that if you are dealing with such, an imperson, such a person, so mechuyev the hodia chomer avera, if you're a psychologist, you have to tell the person, well, you know that this is a very bad avera. I don't know exactly how easy that is to do in the professional world. This would be a very controversial view, um, to put it mildly, in this day and age, you know, with the current you know, science and understanding of medicine psychologists, it's not necessarily always such a healthy or easy thing to transform somebody of this orientation. Maybe it's just easier, you know, to sort of work with it and a person, if you know, they need to get over it uh, so they can find other things, you know, to do in order to get over it. I know that there's a rabbi in England by the name of Rabbi Chaim Rappaport who wrote a whole safer on this, a whole book, you know, uh, in English about the subject, how to be uh, an Orthodox Jew um, while struggling, I guess, with this uh, type of orientation and to live within halakhic parameters. I know that 
I started reading the Sefer at one point in time. I didn't fully like understand everything that he was saying, but I don't really, you know, pretend to have a perfect understanding of the senior and I would deal with it probably more than Rabbi Schwartz wanted to deal with it. But um, at the same time, I tell people, you know, you can turn to Rabbi Rappaport and uh, follow, you know, his guidelines um, to the extent that uh, he's, you know, within the uh, legitimate uh, halakhic uh, sphere. Even though, you know, I once heard one thing that he said that I questioned him about, whatever, I mean, this, it's part of, it's an ongoing, you know, issue, but you certainly, uh, in terms of how to, how people who have this issue or orientation should deal with it, um, but uh, one thing that's absolutely certain is that you can't violate halacha, and the, and the halacha, the Torah says, that this type of relationship is, uh, is an isoskila, so obviously it's not something that a person is allowed to engage in. Um, but this idea of uh, what, you know, conversion therapy that uh, Rav Schwartz is advocating, so I think there was one group that sort of, you know, stood for this notion, and I think they used to give a, a class for, in the professional uh, rabbinic um, uh, course load uh, for the Smicha program at YU, and at one point in time, I don't remember, there was some problem that arose with respect to this organization. I won't mention the name of the organization, but they disappeared. Um, uh, but apparently, it's not such a simple thing to do. Not such a simple thing to do, but, uh, but, but in certain cases, it might actually, um, it might actually be effective. Um, uh, so, um, so that's what Schwartz um, recommends. That's what Schwartz uh, recommends. Um, and uh, he says that within a particular family, if there is somebody of this uh, particular orientation, so it's uh, important for uh, the family uh, to make it uh, clear that uh, while they would support any kind of therapy to help the person you know, deal with the orientation, they can't put their stamp of approval on this lifestyle as something that would be legitimate from a Torah perspective because that could have... Number one, it's not true, but number two, it could have a detrimental effect on other members of the family and also a detrimental effect on other members of the community. So, of course, it's a very interesting thing. I don't know what the context was in which he sat down and he wrote this, you know, 11-page tube, and I don't know where it eventually went. I know that it did get signed. I found another tube of his also sort of in the realm of Yoruday and the Kashrus realm in which he dealt with the, um, the vinegar controversy where there was some vinegar that was being sold that was being certified by a Kashrus agency and then it was discovered that, you know, somebody wasn't paying attention sufficiently, whatever it was, these things happen, people make mistakes, but it turned out that the vinegar was coming from Stamienum and it had affected many, many products and the question within the Kashrus industry was whether there was any room to be made over the Ebed based on various svaras. I know the Rosh Shechter wrote a whole Kunturus at the time. It turns out Rosh Schwartz also wrote a Kunturus, but it wasn't signed, and I don't know if it was sent to anybody, if it was solicited by anybody, but I found that Kunturus as well. But that one wasn't even signed. This one at least was signed. Um, but again, it, it does, it's not clear whom it was uh, sent uh, to, whether you know he intended to send it to, to somebody, um, but um, I figured that it was of uh, historical interest and it certainly was reflective of Schwartz's own personal views on the subject and uh, I felt was, at least in the context of this chuva, this published chuva that summarizes some of his sentiments, it was to die um, to flesh out those sentiments a little bit by reading some of this chuva. Uh, yeah. Given that, how do you think he would have 
let's say you advised for you and that whole recent uh, controversy with the club and so on. I think it's about Shishiva, why you are not supposed to speak oh, about it while there's an ongoing lawsuit. Yeah. Does, he, does he explain how this might be different from somebody who's Mechalo Shabbos, Bifar Hesia, or Shul that holds, you know, Reform that holds Bifar Hesia? It's also Skila. It's also an Isra Skila. Do we allow a member in a Shul? If the members Mechal drives to Shalom Shabbos, if Arhesia, no, maybe maybe he would have said the same thing if the name of the show would have been you know, Mechali Shabbos Bifar Hesia show, you know, and they were you know, celebrated it and had you know parades about how wonderful it is to be Mechali Shabbos, you know, maybe he would have said the same thing. That's just the name. That's just the name. Well, that, that, that was the problem we had with this. Right. Yeah. I'm talking about the ones yeah. who do allow it. So right. How is that different? So I think that he was saying that the problem was that they were legitimizing, you know, these activities according to the Torah. He says, one thing, and I think it was easy for him to get along with a reform rabbis, even with conservative rabbis as well, because they, at least in this day and age, I don't know if it would have been the same thing, you know, 150 years ago when people were more ideologically driven. You know, now I don't think that there is that same ideological drive that people are conservative rabbis because they're bedapka going against orthodoxies because, you know, they didn't have the same background or they didn't have the same, the same education. Um, uh, but I think he had an easier time getting along with it because they weren't saying that he wasn't more authentic. They were just saying that's not what they were up to. That's not what they were able to do. He would go to those trips to Europe and he right. actually and they were conservative they were, they were and he would do it and he, and he liked it very much yeah. because he really felt that he was able to um, have a positive influence on right. those rabbis and they respected him so much he would give shiurim and they respected Rabbi Schwartz so much that whenever there would be a get for example or a divorce in their community so they would send the couple to the Chicago Rabbinical Council mm-hmm. for a get rather than dispensing with the get or sending the person to some conservative, you know, rabbi to do the get because they felt that he was the real McCoy uh, and uh, they respect, and they had so much respect uh, for him and the fact that that, um, that he was, you know, willing to, to, to speak to them and to interact with them. So uh, he was matzil, a lot of people. He really saved people from, you know, not having proper gittin that uh, they, they came to, you know, to, to us for the gittin. I remember when at his levaya, I spoke about how the um, uh, how the rabbis who went on these federation trips were, you know, more attuned to coming to the CRC to bring their gittin because of the tremendous respect they had, you know, for Rabbi Schwartz. And it turned out that one of the reform rabbis who would go on these trips regularly, he got a hold of the tape. He wasn't present, but he got a hold of the tape of the Levaya, and he heard this. And then he wrote me a note saying that it's absolutely true, and I still do it to this day. And you know, you can be more correct. And, yeah, but, but that's, that, that's, that's genuinely, genuinely how they felt about him. So I think that was very different because they weren't uh, saying uh, to him that uh, they disagreed with his take of halacha. They were just saying they weren't on his level. It was a, it was a, it was, it was a totally uh, different, uh, different approach. Okay, so um, moving on to the second half of the tshuva. So the second half of the tshuva is also a very interesting thing. It talks about some Jew from Russia who was under the impression that they didn't need like a regular get because there was a civil divorce and thought that any judgment of divorce that was issued from the Akhosa Shonachim, from the civil court, so, you know, that counts as a get. 
So um, Rosh Hashanah is sort of scratching his head. You know, how can you say such a thing? It's interesting because of Herschel Shechter, my Rebbe, wrote an article in the very first issue of the journal of Halakha in Contemporary Society on the subject of Dina Damachus Adina. When do you say the law of the land is the law? So uh, uh, one very important distinction, which is, uh, goes without saying pretty much, but if you need somebody who said it, the Tashbets wrote it explicitly in a tshuva, is that to the degree that we say we follow the law of the land, it's only with respect to certain monetary matters. It's not even all monetary matters. If it's uh, dealings between a Jew and a non-Jew, you follow the law of the land, the monetary matters. If it's dealings between a Jew and a Jew, you don't follow it, unless it's some sort of an economic regulation <coughs> Um, of a sweeping nature that has to be followed by everybody because otherwise it would just break down and it wouldn't be uh, effective for the economic betterment of all of society, like bankruptcy law. But you couldn't have like two private parties in a bankruptcy proceeding. You know, there's a Jewish uh, bankruptcy debtor and a Jewish uh, creditor says, oh, you know, between you and me, uh, so we don't need to follow this bankruptcy stuff. You'll pay me, you know, the money you owe me and everybody else you're following the bankruptcy laws. Then the whole system would break down. So can't can have preferences, you know, when it comes to a bankruptcy proceeding. Um, uh, but in, really, even with respect to most monetary laws, we don't apply Dina to Malchus, so Dina, when it comes to monetary dealings between two Jews. But to the extent that it does apply, it only applies in the monetary realm, like with respect respect to bankruptcy law, Rav Henkin wrote with respect to rent control laws, but it does not apply in the ritual prohibition realm. If Dina de Malchusa was that, okay, everybody has to work on Shabbos, so obviously that uh, is not binding upon us and we wouldn't be allowed to follow that. Um, so Dina de Malchusa was, uh, you can you know, eat uh, pork, so that's nice, but we still can't eat pork. So you don't follow Dina de Malchusa when it comes uh, to the ritual realm. So um, Rav Shechter, you know, quoted that distinction and he pointed out that reform groups have erroneously distinguished between marriage and divorce um, requiring a religious marriage ceremony while not requiring a religious get. And they came up with the following argument. They said, well, a religious marriage ceremony, yeah, that's religious. And it stands, that's religious. That has to be done, like, you know, by a rabbi with a religious ceremony because you make a bracha. But when you do a get, <laughs> you don't make a bracha. So obviously, a get is not a religious ceremony, and therefore the civil divorce is good enough. Um, so Roshachter pointed out that, no, um, it's just as much, you know, a mitzvah. Um, it's included within, you know, the Tayyag mitzvahs of how one goes about, you know, getting a divorce. But sometimes it's, uh, you know, people get divorced who really shouldn't be getting divorced. And the Rashba says that's why we don't make a bracha. But otherwise, if there really was a requirement in a particular case to do a get, then, you know, you could, you know, justify potentially, you know, making a bracha. There are other reasons why we don't make a bracha. Right. There are other reasons why we don't make a bracha on a get, but it has nothing to do with it being, but it's not mumminous. It's not like something which is a monetary matter. It's definitely a religious matter, and it's something which absolutely is required uh, as a matter of a Jewish law. So Rav Shechter, you know, quotes this, that he quoted, it's interesting because here, if you look in the materials, um, which is in Simon Yud on page 5, quotes a halacha and Shulchan Aruch and Ben-Ezer, Simon Kuflami, which talks about, let's say a get was done in a civil court, but it was an actual get, meaning you had the actual text of uh, the get, um, with uh, the Hebrew text and everything else, and it was delivered by the husband in the civil court in front of the um, in front of the wife. I mean, or it was given delivered to the wife in front of two kosher uh, witnesses. But the ones who signed on the get, since it was done in the civil uh, court, were two non-Jews. Yeah, like you know, two non-Jews. Two non-Jewish court administrators who sign who sign the get. So Shulchan Aruch says, "Get de I mean, I've done gitin in our kol shalav de which is just you know, I'm there 
at the conclusion of the civil divorce, the husband and the wife agreed they're going to do the get at the conclusion of the civil divorce in the courthouse. So we've written the get, you know, in the courthouse. We did this a couple of times in uh, in New York, um, where, uh, but but the but the court had nothing to do with the actual writing of the get. It was just in the courthouse, written by the, our regular sofa, signed by our regular agent, and, and everything else. But here we're talking about with the court officials actually signed on it. Afilu Kasi saw it was written by a Jewish sofa, and it was given over in front of proper Edim Siwa, the witnesses who who witnessed the delivery of the get. Even if the two non-Jews who signed the get, you could tell they were non-Jews, so you wouldn't rely upon them to be the Ede Mesira per se. We know Ede Mesira Karatsi, right? That the ones who really effectuate the validity of the get are the Ede Mesira, the other Kribaliyazer, Vilazer, the Lake and the Mechash, Dilma Asin Mismachalaya, so we're not worried you're going to rely upon them to be the Ede Mesira, Apilu Hachi Puzzle. Nonetheless, it's going to be Puzzle. Why is it Puzzle? So there are two possible reasons that the Mephorshim quote. One is that it's a gazera, but we're worried that if you um, allow the non-Jews to sign in, when we know that these are clearly non-Jewish names, you know, Nicholas, Ben Christopher or something, where you could tell that it's a non-Jewish name, um, but, you know, maybe you'll end up relying, you know, upon... Um, another case where it's not so clear and then you're going to not know that the people are not Jewish and you're going to use them as the Eid Mesira. So in which case, you know, the get is definitely going to be Batel. So therefore, um, we don't allow it. The other reason that's given is that even though we say that Eide Mesira Karzi, we also require good Eide Chasima. You know, that's Mipnei uh, because So even if you don't have, you know, if you're going to do Eide Chasima, which we do in every single get, you want to make sure that they're also kosher. So uh, for these two reasons, uh, even if everything else was perfectly kosher, except that you had the two court officers who were not Jewish signing on the get, uh, we still would say that it's possible that the get uh, that the get would be no good. So that's where Schwartz uh, quotes in this um, um, in this tshuva. Um, but then he says that there's another reason that we could potentially be makele over here if this husband, this Russian husband, is refusing to give a proper Jewish kosher get to his wife, and that's because they got married in Russia. So he says, "Efsha sheyesh lahakos." His four lines in the bottom in the simon yud. That maybe in this particular case, um, the woman is not available anymore. The man wants to get remarried, and he's presenting us with a civil divorce, which obviously is meaningless. But now he says, but now uh, even if we can't somehow manage again, he says, Rav Schwartz argues that we can rely upon the fact that it was only a civil marriage that was performed in Russia. Now, when it comes to civil marriages, there was a machlokis between Rav Moshe Feinstein and Rav um, uh, Yosef Elio Henkin as to whether they absolutely require a get. According to, uh, both of them agree, even Rav Moshe agrees the Chathilo, you should always do a get, but but if you can't do a get, so Rav Moshe says if it's only a civil marriage, you didn't have kosher witnesses, so then we assume that they were not halakhically married, and if there's no get, so then the woman would be allowed to remarry. Rav Penkin held no, that when they live together as husband and wife afterwards, the whole world is watching them living together as husband and wife, even if there were no kosher witnesses at the time of the wedding, the kosher witnesses while they're living together as husband and wife. It's an anansadi. The world knows that they're living together and therefore that is considered to be a, a, a testimony, so to speak, 
on the consummation of the um, of the marriage. And uh, and Rav Moshe disagreed with him based on Rivash. That uh, we'll see will come up uh, in the context of other uh, tshuvas uh, still to come. Why? Well, that's what Rav Moshe said. That um, even according to Rav Hank and Svara, most of the time people are not going to have intent. Rav Moshe held that people don't have intent to get married after their civil marriage. You know, when they're living together as because husband and wife, so they don't have intent to, to every single time they're having relations and intimacy with each other. That oh, here I'm, we're here by consummating our marriage, right? That's correct, because they, they're, they're relying on the fact that they already had a civil marriage. Yeah. So if Henkin would say, yeah, but uh, they know that the civil marriage is, doesn't really count as a, uh, as a valid Jewish marriage. So that's why Rav Moshe would say, yeah, Rav Henkin would agree with me if it wasn't a civil marriage, it was like a reform wedding or something like that. So then for sure, even Rav Henkin should agree. I don't know if Rav Henkin did agree. Rav Moshe would often say over and over again, Rav Henkin should agree with me. Um, and then in that case, for sure, they don't have intention every time that they're together that they're consummating the marriage because they thought that the reform wedding ceremony was a valid wedding ceremony from a Jewish perspective. So he always would draw that distinction within Rav Henkin. Um, but even within the civil marriage context, they disagreed. However, um, the Rav, Mo, Rav Schwartz liked to point out that if you looked at the writings of Rav Henkin, Rav Henkin himself was Mako with respect to, to Russian marriages that were performed in communist Russia because he said for sure there it's not a marriage altogether because a marriage denotes some type of exclusivity. Apparently in Soviet Russia, um, the understanding, I don't know exactly where, when or how, but the understanding of, of the people when they got married was uh, that there is no exclusivity per se, that uh, there's uh, some sort of a ceremony, but it's free reign. Um, so you want to be with somebody else's husband, with somebody else's wife, then that's okay. Um, uh, there was no uh, sense that there was, a, just because, just like it was a completely communist country, there was no sense of any kind of sanctity of the marital bond. So for that reason, he said the marriage is counted as the Gornish. That's explicitly written here. It's in the Lay Bibra, um, page 20 of, of Hankin's writings, um, when he speaks about Yerusha uh, Arkos. And he speaks about that if you get married in our coast in a civil course, so he holds in general you need a get, but then he has an amnam. He says a however, a however course. It's good if you're going to have a very, very big chumrah, so it's good to have a however course, like an escape hatch, you know? However, I'll give you, like, you know, this one carrot where you could be mako, and Rav, and, Rav, and Rav Schwartz used it in this particular case. They don't believe in the notion of the sanctity of the marital bond. Like, you know, the Gemara in Kiddushin says that Kiddushin is a Lashon Hektesh. So the whole idea of communism was that there's no Hektesh. Vegam, that religion is the opium of the masses. I don't know. Vegam, who are right. The whole thing is not, you know, real. Um, it's not considered to uh, be permanent. So if it's really true, if Hankin is assuming that it's true, that they don't really care if uh, the women can be with anybody because there's no sanctity to the bond. It's like a man who goes to a woman and says, you are hereby married to me, but you're, you know, but, but you're not prohibited to any other man. Do what you want. He says, that's not marriage. Then she's not considered to be a married woman. They don't need to get. Um, it's interesting. He does say, you know, as sort of a qualifying clause, he says, So he does throw in that if it's true, that that's everybody's perspective. And, you know, so, but since once he threw in this possibility, if you're already inclined like Rav Moshe to say that civil marriages in general don't really require a get the ikuva, 
So then you have Rav Henkin, who is the one, you know, holdback, saying, oh, but I think there might be wiggle room if it's a communist Russian marriage, so, you know, you're going to take that. Gamitam, but he also throws in, Gamitam, he doesn't only rely upon that, Larry, he also adds that he thinks that the Rivash, the Rivash was speaking about people who got married in a totally secular, anti-Torah type of environment, where he says that he doesn't think that there is a Chazaka, there's no Chazaka, that a person automatically wants to sanctify their marriage uh, as a Kedas Moshe Yisrael, as a real Jewish marital bond. So he says he thinks that in a place like Russia, where there is such antagonism towards religion, you can certainly rely upon the Rivash. So even if you didn't rely upon the first of our Hankin said that people don't have that attitude of, oh, my wife can be with, any, with, with anybody, um, then you certainly have the second Svara, that it's a very anti-religious type of regime where people are not looking to create a sacred bond. So that's what he says in his you last read, argument you here. You read about, even in this country, you read about cases where, where people are married and have that attitude. Absolutely you do, absolutely. And there was a point in time, I think, where somebody even like wrote a book in, um, uh, you know, maybe during like the, the, the 60s period, 60s, early 70s, was kind of like the hippie era about open marriage, and that was considered to be something which was, you know, very much, you know, celebrated and touted 100%. So, Gami Tom So, anybody in such a marriage wouldn't need a get? I don't know. It's an interesting thing. If they explicitly went into a marriage and like they sent that on the wedding invitation, come and join us for our open marriage celebration, you know, something like that. Maybe, yeah. I haven't really received those invitations. Although, <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, the types of things that are being bandied about nowadays in certain circles, like it doesn't really seem so far away, unfortunately, tragically, you know, to talk about right. such things. You know, Chas uh, uh, Yes. Back on my something that in Russia, you know, they, they would get an apartment and that. So people that were living together, they sign up a certain way so they can get the apartment. And if they decided they want to stop living together, then they'll. It, it, it was. Not, not quite a. It was like more of a. It was viewed as right, right. It was, it was viewed as sort of utilitarian, you know, maybe for whatever, you know, temporary period. It was, it was almost like getting a green card kind of thing, right? Okay. So, so so let me just read through when he quotes the rebush. Because it's sort of like their own a sort of anti-religion religion. It's like a secular religion. They want very much that people don't follow religion. And we know that this was very much the story in Russia, in the former Soviet Union. I mean, we all know growing up what it was like. You know, the people would go in on trips and they would try to sneak in some tefillin into the former Soviet Union because there was such antagonism against the religion. You'd like to learn Hebrew, you know, in private and you'd get caught and you'd be thrown into jail like, you know, Anatoly Sharansky, Anatoly Sharansky. Um, so we know what went on. So, So that's what the Rivash is speaking about when the Rivash was make about these things. But Moshe realized, Rivash was a Rishon, of course, but Moshe relies heavily upon the Rivash. Um, especially if they're living amongst other communists, other anti-religious people, they're not living amongst a little shtetl, you know, in you know pre uh, pre war, you know, Russia, where you would have like a tevia and uh, and that type of community. Or this is post war Russia, where religion was basically uh, stamped out. Um, he says, but that's not like the way it is in America. 
in America there really is some sort of a sense of a marital bond, that there you can have uh, some sort of a, re- a, a religious expression uh, in America, so it's very different from communist Russia. So that's what Rav Schwartz says over here. We see that even Rapenkin, who's the big machmir to always require to get when there's a civil marriage, was more prepared to be Mako if it was in communist Russia. So that's why ultimately he's prepared to be Mako in this particular case. Uh, so the Jewish couple that lives together, they live together without anything, so then we don't generally require get. I just had a case like this. Just had a case like this uh, maybe a week ago where somebody, you know, asked that question. A couple living together. Nobody considered them to be married. They didn't hold right. themselves out to be married. Just living together. That's Gornish. That's Gornish McGornish uh, in that particular case. How Similar to what that we have in the Rebush. Like, take a look at the Rebush. It's on the top of page six. It's very important because Ramosha very much relies upon the Rebush especially when he deals not only with civil marriages, but also when it comes to reform marriages. So this is um, this, uh, source Gimel. Um, reverse if, uh, so he talks about a woman who came from a particular place where everybody sort of, where these were Anusos, where they were um, forced into uh, essentially living lives like heathens. They were living lives of, um, of idolaters. Uh, and uh, they were surrounded, particularly or uh, completely, by idolaters. And uh, there was, and the person got married, uh, kind of, uh, to somebody else who may have been halakhically Jewish, um, uh, but it was in the context of uh, this idolatrous society. Shlokitshevedim, there were no witnesses there. There was no kind of wedding ceremony at all. Certainly no shevavachos, no witnesses, no you know no chupa. They only got married according to the idolatrous ways of the society in which they lived. And with their own priests who were pronouncing the rites, because remember these were anosim, so they were doing everything according to sort of you no know, Catholic rites, if you can imagine, almost like a church ceremony. But they happen to both be people of Jewish descent. So the question is, do you need to get? There are other friends who are also Anusim. So they all knew about this. So there are other Jewish people that knew that they were together. So do they require a get? But they're basically living kind of like a, a Christian life. And then she even got pregnant from this man. So they really were living together as a married couple. And then the man said, bye-bye. Um, and he went, maybe Liam went on a trip at Vilyasov Shivila Ode, and he never, he, he, he never came back. Now the question is, uh, so what happens to the rest of the life of this woman? Yomadena Rabbeinu, what do we do? So the Rivash, that was the Shiloh. The Rivash said that, um, that this is not, what this type of a marriage that's performed in accordance with the ceremonies of the Yom the Kahone Bamosam, and with their own priest, Sheemem Kshash Kiddushin. He says, I don't think it's a Kshash Kiddushin. And he says, even if you did have Edom Kshemem there, the way that they performed their marriage was, you know, do you, you know, lawfully take this woman, you know, do you take this woman to be your lawful, you know, wedded wife? Do you take this husband to be your lawfully hooded, uh, wedded husband. I do, I do, but there are no, there's no misiras tabas, there's no kiddushin, you know, that's effectuated through the giving of a ring, a nasanhu who he says, it's not being done according to the Jewish ceremony, so therefore he says, so of course, the wedding is absolutely garnished. Um, the only thing that happens is that the priest, you know, he makes, you know, a very, um, uh, I suppose, a dramatic uh, singing presentation. Um, in which he um, in which he marries them off, and he gives them a ring, you know. So maybe you know he's married to them, but the uh, <laughs> the priest gives a ring to to, to, to both of them. Here, take a ring, you know. Um, so uh, so so he says. 
And he says uh, that even when they have their intimate relations afterwards, so you'll say that Enadamosa Bilaso Bilasno, so here's what the Rebash says, it's clear that these people are not Baal Hashem Kiddushin, that when they have their intimate relations afterwards, they don't have Kiddushin in mind, because they already bought into the system. These are people already bought into the idolatrous system. Once they're going along with the the whole uh, ceremony and the whole, you know, with all the the bells and the whistles uh, and the pomp and circumstance, uh, so to speak, um, so then it's clear that they're saying we're not living a, a life of Kedas Moshe Yisrael. So even when they're living with each other afterwards, it's not with the intention in mind that uh, their intimate relationship is going to be for the purpose of Kedushin. In their mind, this is their Kedushin. This church wedding is their Kedushin since it doesn't count for anything. So therefore, they're not married then and they're not married forever, uh, forever afterwards. You know, they uh, lived, you know... Um, so he said the woman... That pregnant, the woman who had the baby would be free to marry. She'd be free anybody. to marry anybody. That's a hundred percent right. Why yeah. would this be different for two people who go to Jewish people together dating, whatever it is? They say our parents are fighting. Forget the rabbi. Let's go to court. We'll get married together. With I mean, they, in their so what Moshe they're... says, it's no different. But Moshe okay, says okay. no different, and the Rivash said, no, this is different. I'm, I'm sorry, not the Rivash. The Rav Henkin said that right. it's that, that this particular case of the the American marriage model. Um, where they're uh, living, you know, in a society which uh, does, you know, allow for some sort of religious practice and the like. They haven't bought into some sort of a, a Christian system of marriage. So he views civil marriage as kind of different that uh, when the people know that the civil marriage doesn't count as a, a real uh, genuine here. So they thought this is their religious marriage ceremony. It just happens to be a different religion. Um, but the civil marriage is no religious marriage service. So when they're living together afterwards, so maybe that would count for something. So Rapenkin has a different approach. Um, but um, Moshe certainly felt that you could rely upon the Rivash when it comes to American civil marriages. Again, I want to emphasize that even you, there, it depends on lots of different circumstances. Like you could have a couple that gets married um, civilly. And uh, they're not from at that time. And then they become Bali Shuba. And then they're living in an Orthodox uh, community, like husband and wife, but they never got around to having a chupa v'kidushin. So you hear cases sometimes where a rabbi gets wind of this, and then he performs a chupa v'kidushin for such a couple. But sometimes they never ever get around to it. So let's say that after 50 years of living as a from couple, everybody knows that, that their husband and wife in an Orthodox community, um, uh, the husband decides that he's going to run away. And uh, not give his wife a get, so she can she married without a get. So my so so uh, uh, Marie Verabi, uh, Rabbi Mordechai Willard thinks that in that particular case, so for sure they became from, so they understood that their original civil marriage was nothing, and they were living with each other afterwards. They were living with each other for the sake of a consecrated Orthodox marriage. Everybody in the community, all Orthodox people, knew that they were living together as husband and wife. So there would be much more difficult to be met. So you can't just carp lunch and say, oh, you know, we make all about civil marriages. It really depends on the circumstances in every single case. But very often there's what to be makele about again when you have a situation when the husband's refusing to give a get. But it's always, even if Moshe said that the chatrila, you should try to be machmed for the opinion. Again, Rav Henkin was you don't need me to say, well, he was not a katli kani beagma, you know, he wasn't a, 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 a wood, you know, chopper. He was, uh, uh, he was the major posek of American Jewry, so you have to, you know, be concerned about his opinion, certainly in the first, uh, in the first instance. Okay, let's move on to Simon Yud Aleph, okay? Simon Yud Aleph, Havaz Barim Tam Okay, so you have to worry 
Sneas issues. Uh, that a w- women go swimming, okay? They have a swimming pool. We can't imagine anything arising in terms of sneas issues right in our community with women who go swimming that there'd be anything to worry about, of course. So uh, but women go swimming in a, a swimming pool. Okay, some of you like know what I'm talking about. So women <laughs> go swimming in a swimming pool. And, um, um, and the question is, can they bring their young children with them when they go swimming um, in their swimming pool? Or is it considered to be that? We're talking about young boys. Young, obviously, young girls, no problem. But they wanted to, only, it's only women. swimming pool or is this a private? This mean, is... Who's going swimming here? This is a a special women's hours or special, you know, women's, uh, you know, beach set aside, whatever it is. It's a special section that's set aside uh, for women to go swimming at a particular time in a particular place, but not men. Only women, but they have their small, you know, they have their little boys and they don't have a babysitter for them or, you know, can't afford a babysitter and they want to bring their little boys along while they go swimming. So is that going to be a problem? That's a, this is a chuva that you were very interesting, Shiloh, not sort of your, you know, boilerplate cookie cutter, you know, Shiloh that, you know, you see in every single chuva safe, but a very sort of interesting Shiloh. So he starts off by pointing out that, okay, what's the, what about Yichud? Well, is not going to really come up when you have lots of people, generally speaking, but um, he says that you wouldn't have a yichud issue from the standpoint of the uh, from the boys if they're less than nine years old, because there's no issue of yichud for a boy under the age of nine or a girl under the age of three. But what about from a chinuch perspective? So this is very interesting because the Gemara in Sukkah says that a father is obvious is obligated to be mechanech his son to do whatever he can do as soon as he's of the age he's able to do it. He can speak to teach him Torah sivul and Moshe Shakilas Yaakov. He's able to shake a lulav. He should get him a lulav to shake, etc., etc. Able to wear tzitzis, that's the Gemara and Sukkah and Membeis So he says, we see that the Gemara indicates it all depends. Every single mitzvah has its special zman, it has its special time. What's the time of the mitzvah in which it becomes appropriate that we keep young boys away from women swimming? What's the what, what's what's the appropriate age for that? That's kind of like the question. So he says, obviously, if the boys are four, five years old, three, four, five years old, two years old, they're not going to have hiruim. They're not going to have any lewd thoughts, you know, regarding, you know, women who are swimming at that, uh, at that young age. Um, but what about in terms of the women themselves? Is it something which is inappropriate from the standpoint of the women themselves? Mitzana Nashim, the Gabi Erba, he says that, um, we find that at the point in time, this is Halakha and Ebene Ezzesim and Chopa Aleph and the Shulchan Arach, that at the point in time in which a woman herself would feel embarrassed being, um, uh, unclothed, um, uh, in front of uh, her young son, so if she feels a sense of embarrassment, you know, once he reaches a certain stage, he could be three years old and not feeling anything about it, but she feels like a sense of embarrassment about it, so then uh, that's the point in which it's appropriate to, to stop. mehem. <laughs> At the point in time in which she feels uncomfortable about disrobing in their presence, and then even if, you know, very often it'll be the case, a little boy is going to crawl into his mother's beds and want to, you know, sleep together with his mother. I, I've seen it. It, it happens, Taka. Um, but at the point in time in which she becomes sort of uncomfortable about the nakedness quotient of it, then she should make sure that she's wearing, you know, she's fully clothed. Because there is a certain point in time, it might not be uncomfortable for the child, but it becomes, you know, uncomfortable for the mother. So he says that there certainly, you know, is a point in time. If, if you reach that point in which the women would be uncomfortable, so certainly that is, you know, a consideration. And then he goes into, well, we also know that we're not allowed to uh, feed a child at Nebelos. Like if a child is eating non-kosher, 
Um, uh, so the Bezdin is not obligated to separate the child, the young child, from eating non-kosher, though a father is obligated. Um, but uh, the Magen Avram says uh, that um, this is only, even the father's obligation to take away like a non-kosher from the child um, is only at uh, the uh, point in time in which the child has um, some sense of Havana. But if the child's like Mamish, you know, 10 months old, and the child, there's, or I don't know, a year and a half, and the child, there's no Havana whatsoever, um, so uh, then uh, then uh, that rule doesn't apply, although obviously you're not allowed to feed the child even at that age. And that's the question, okay, you're never allowed to be what we call machilin also be a dying. You're never allowed to actively feed the non-kosher to the child. So is this similar to like feeding the non-kosher to the child if you're uh, going to bring this child to this place where the women are bathing? So he says, no, because you're not introducing the child to something which is in Avera. If it would be a mixed swimming community pool, you're introducing the child to something which is in Avera. That's machil and also But he says, if it's just women, you know, there, there's nothing intrinsically of an Avera nature that's going on. All you'd have to be worried about is the hirhuim of the child, and the child doesn't have hirhuim at this age. Now, one shuva that he doesn't, you know, cite in this, um, he cites a couple of shuvas that Rav Moshe uh, speaks about, but there's a shuva that I included in the materials, which is Rav Moshe in Yoridzeach, Elakalak, Kim Simen Kuplam, and Zion, where Rav Moshe was asked about what if you have a, a school and you want to have mixed classes of children at a very young age, like at the age of three or four, when clearly there are no Hirhurim, there are no lewd thoughts uh, at that particular age. So he says, well, it really depends. You have a machlokis with respect to shaking a lulav. Let's say on, on Yantiv, does the lulav have to belong to the child or not? So the Magen Avram says, based on a ritva in Masech HaSukkah, that in order for the child to fulfill the mitzvah the child has to fulfill it with all of the hidurim. It has to be kachshero, the mitzvah has to be 100%, you know, in accordance with all specifications. So if it doesn't actually belong to the child, you just loaned it to the child, the child doesn't fulfill his mitzvah. So if you fulfill the mitzvah on your first, the first day of Yantiv, you give the, uh, the, the, the lulav to the child to fulfill the mitzvah, you have to give it to him as a gift. Problem is the child can't give it back to you as a gift. So on that basis, so the Mugan Avon would say, so you better, you get to observe two days of Yantiv, you know, in Schutzlaris, you better buy an ex- special extra set of Lulav and Esrug for each one of your children, so you're not going to have, you know, this issue. Um, but the Mishnah Brewer quotes the Mordechai, the Mordechai doesn't hold like that shita. The Mordechai holds that as long as the cotton basically fulfills the Mishnah, the Lulav is a kosher Lulav, and he's shaking the Lulav, so you shake it together with the cotton, he doesn't own it per se, but that's good enough. That's good enough for kind of purposes. So Moshe says, here it's going to be completely turned around. According to the Muggin of Ram, that it's all about fulfilling the mitzvah the way that you're supposed to fulfill it. So the children, when they're very young, they have no hirurim. So it's perfectly fine for them to be in a mixed class because they're doing the mitzvah the right way, which is you do it without hirurim. You, you learn Torah without hirurim. So they're learning without hirurim. But according to the Mishnah Baru, who quotes the Mordechai, that the idea is no, that you're just, you don't have to do it so perfectly the first time around. You just have to train yourself for how you're going to do it in the future. So in the future, the children are not going to be allowed to be together. They have to be magio themselves. They have to train themselves in terms of just when they're going to do the mitzvah right. How are they going to go about doing it? And at that point in time, they're going to have to have separate classes. So he says it's best even from a very, very young age. Unless he says it's a shas of chak, you could be meiko, but it's best because he says meiko is in, we really hold like uh, the um, like the opinion of uh, the of the Mugan of Ram. So you really could be meiko, but he says that ideally it would be yotir tov lahachmir to separate them um, from 
a um, uh, from a very uh, from a very young age based on the consideration of the Mordechai. It's a very very interesting thing. But here, without getting into that consideration of uh, Moshe, so he talks about what is sort of like uh, the appropriate chinuch for the children to uh, start realizing that uh, they should stay away from being near where women are going swimming. So he talks about uh, the age of Chinuch for when they start learning um, uh, learning Torah. So he says that, that he thinks that it really would be based on at what point in time do we say they don't really have Havana. Um, uh, so when we say that they should start learning Torah, so that's when we assume that they generally have Havana. So he quotes the Shulchan Aruch in Yeridea, which says, that once they reach the age of five, so that's when it's appropriate for them to go into, into yeshiva. He quotes the Ravid, who disagrees with the Rambam when it comes to like custody issues. When it comes to custody issues, so, so the Rambam says that up until the age of six, all children should be with their mother. And the Ravid says, what are you talking about? But when they're like, you know, past the age of four or five, they have to start learning Torah. And it's the father that teaches them Torah. So he quotes the Ravid as well, that he said, we see that there's something which is significant about the age of five. And along the way, he quotes a different Igros Moshe. It talks about at what point in time do you have to make sure that when you dress your children, you're dressing the boys' dafka with boys' clothing and the girls' dafka with girls' clothing. And he says as well that it's at the point in time in which the children are no longer, no longer need their mother and they're sort of on their own. So then that's when they notice sort of the difference within their own clothing when they're not dependent upon their children. And he quotes in Yochasukah, what is the age for that? So the age seems to be Chamei Shonim Shleimim. Chamei Shonim Shleimim means that they are five years old. Chanim Shleimim, when we say Yud Gimel Shonim Shleimim to be Bar Mitzvah, it means you're 13 years old. You've had 13 years. Remember, the first year you're alive, you're zero. So five full years means that the person, child, child, child is now five. So he says basically up until five, they could be brought to the swimming pool, but you know um, when they're um, when the, once they turn five years old, um, so then that's the point. There. So he actually does the, uh, demarcate the, the point at a pretty young age. He says that they could only really be brought to the swimming pool up until the age of five, but once they reach the age of five, then they shouldn't do it anymore. And Agav. He happened to mention this question that came up recently about if you happen to have, uh, he's talking about the, the, uh, a woman who is going swimming and there's a male lifeguard. Is she allowed to go uh, swimming when there's a male lifeguard? And um, he would, uh, or let's say, you know, it turns out, you may not, you know, necessarily know it at the time, it turns out to be a male lifeguard. So uh, the, um, so the, so Ramosha said there may be some room, at least in terms of a lifeguard situation, where the person knows that if they try any hanky panky, they're going to lose their job, um, and they have to pay attention just to, you know, to save lives, and the women have the right to be there, so he can't, like, you know, be the one who's going to stop them from being the place where they're entitled to be. But he says that if the woman is a particular Yurei Shemayim, or she's the wife of a Tamachacham, okay, so, you know, that includes, between those two categories, you have basically all of, you know, Chicago covered. Um, so, uh, so then, uh, then it's appropriate, uh, then it's appropriate to be Machmir. Um, and um, I found that uh, that was, uh, but he says in our particular case that's not the shash. We're not talking about a uh, a male life, but we're only talking about you know little boys. All right, um, I saw a couple of hands up. Yes, uh, Sam. Go back to the question of Yehuri. Uh, wouldn't it be more appropriate to have professionals measure these things rather than have the rabbis decide? The, the rabbis are professionals when it comes to these things. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Uh, any other questions? Speaking as a rabbi. Speaking as a rabbi. Okay, okay. good. So, Mr. Shem, next time we're going to pick up from Simeon Base. Next week is Purim. The following week I'm in New York. So, Mr. Shem, we'll meet again in three weeks. Okay.